Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, February 4th. We have a great show, as always. Uh, Michael T. Young is here from New Jersey, is our featured poet. He's uh, had poems in the current issue of Rattle, as well as two others. And uh, we'll talk to him about his new book and uh, all sorts of things. Um, but first, let me say, uh, Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been publishing since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we'd like to start out with a warm-up poem. And um, I forgot to put a warm-up poem up today. So I hit the random button, which um, is something, it's a, it's a WordPress plugin that um, uh, Robert Peake wrote for me. Uh, so we could have random poems up. And now it's a, it's a pretty popular WordPress plugin, I guess, across the board. Um, so I hit that old random button. And what came up but uh, this poem here, Jane's Heartbreak Yard Sale by Lytton Bell. So let's warm up with that. Um, Lytton Bell is, uh, I don't know where she lives. She, we published her one time uh, in this, this poem. She's the author of three books, though, most recently, Nectar. And you can find them all on Amazon. Here's uh, Lytton Bell's poem, Jane's Heartbreak Yard Sale, to get us started. Jane's Heartbreak Yard Sale. Who sells used sex toys at a garage sale? I knew I had to pull over as soon as I saw that table full of dildos just to hear this woman's story. A whole bed was for sale and a claw-footed bathtub, a motorcycle, a large stack of books, lingerie, and ten photo albums. Photo albums? Leafing through, I could see that they were all happy couple love photos their trip to Hawaii, backpacking through Europe, mountain climbing in Tibet. And I shouldn't forget to mention all of the love notes, three huge cardboard boxes full of them. I picked one up. I stood outside your window for hours last night while you were sleeping, hoping you would feel me there and pull open the curtains. I approached her as she sat by the cash box, wearing a pair of oversized pink sunglasses. So, this is everything he ever gave you? I asked her, trying to be nonchalant. She nodded. I was going to light it all on fire, she told me. But what's the point? True, I replied, not sure what else to say. She seemed so peaceful about it, almost happy. Just then I noticed a pile of CDs. Jane's joyride mix. Jane's taking a bath mix. Mix for Jane for when she's feeling a little blue. And one called, In case of an emergency, I love you. It was sealed with yellow caution tape and had obviously never been opened. Can I buy this? I asked her. Three fifty, she said. I gave her the money and put the CD in my car and cried and could not open it. So that was Lytton Bell with her poem, uh, Jane's Heartbreak Yard Sale. Um, it's nice to know that we have uh, a dildo on the show already. That didn't take long. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to our uh, featured poet today. Um, as I mentioned before, Michael uh, T. Young is a poet living in New Jersey, and his most recent book here, which I'll put up on screen really quick, is... Uh, This is a really beautiful cover. Actually, I was uh, looking. I was reading this book like I always do at my son's jujitsu class, and as he was getting his um, 
his water, little water break or air break if you forget to bring water, uh, which is equally important according to our jujitsu master. Um, he saw this cover and it really caught his attention and he stared at it and said, what the heck is going on there? And uh, so I showed him the book a little bit. And this is uh, The Infinite Doctrine of Water by Michael T. Young. Um, um, just read his bio really quick. Michael T. Young, this is his third full-length collection. Um, the Infinite Doctrine of Water was published by Terrapin Books. He's also got a chapbook, uh, Living in the Counterpoint, by Finishing Line Press, which received the 2014 Gene Pedrick Chapbook Award from the New England Poetry Club. His other collections include The Beautiful Moment of Being Lost, Transcriptions of Daylight, and Because the Wind Has Questions. Uh, you can find more information on him uh, at michaeltyoung.com, which is... Uh, which sounds exactly, or spelled exactly like it sounds. Uh, he lives with a wife and children in Jersey City, New Jersey, and works uh, in Manhattan, I think. So um, that might be something interesting to talk about, too. But uh, here he is, uh, Michael T. Young. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So, uh, yeah, so you live in New York City, right? Or you live in New Jersey, work in New York City? And... Correct. I live in Jersey City, right across the street from basically across the street from Manhattan. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's it's really, I mean, one of my favorite, pla- favorite places to go. Alan used to have an apartment there, so we used to be able to uh, take advantage and uh, stop by kind of any time we could, you know, get in the area. It was really cool. Um, where, where, where in Manhattan? Oh, near, near Central Park, like sort of, near I don't Park. know, like three, four blocks away, south of Central Park. Um, nice. Yeah. It's a good yeah, not bad, not bad. Uh, so do you want to start us out with a poem, then we'll talk some? And I should say before we do that yeah. if anybody has any questions for Michael T. Young, uh, use the chat window on YouTube, and I'll pass any questions or comments along for him. Um, let's see, we've got 14 people watching live right now, and people are trickling in. Um, um, do please click the like button, too, and share wherever you're listening to this, either now or later. That's always really helpful. Helps um, get us in the algorithms and let these kind of shows and podcasts be shared around the Internet. And uh, that's always a good thing because we need more poetry in this world. So, Michael T. Long, let, let's uh, start us out with a poem. Okay. Um, I'm going to start off right at the beginning of the, the book, actually. Uh, page seven with the first poem, which is uh, Advice from a Bat. Um, advice from a bat hunt only at night fly erratically defy even your own expectations moths and mosquitoes whatever is small and annoying cultivate the myths about you until every predator fears your legend when hunting be guided by a language only you can hear The same is true when courting the one you love. Clean fangs and fur nightly. Crawl or climb to confuse the observant. Retreat to a cave no one believes in. Let the day and the world pass while you sleep. And sleep upside down, ready to wake and fall into flight. Thank you again. That was uh, advice from Bat by Michael T. Young from his... uh most recent book, The Infinite Doctrine of Water. And um, that's a good poem to start with, actually, because I wanted to know um, that line. um, What was the line? It was um, retreat to a cave no one believes in. That line really sung to me (laughs) and stuck out. And I really wondered what, 
you sort of had in mind when you, you know, when you wrote that line, you know, the a cave that, that no one believes in it is such an interesting twist. So what, what is the cave that no one believes in? <laughs> it was one of those moments where the poem itself started that, you, you know, you, you know, when you're, you start off in a poem with something that anchors you like an image or something you see or a word that you heard. And then at some point it starts vaulting off into, you know, other regions, things that your imagination starts connecting to. And that, that was really where I felt it taking off for me um, toward the end there. I, I just, I started thinking about the idea, the, the fear we have of bats, uh, which is sort of irrational in a way because most bats are fruit bats and things like that, not vampire bats. And um, just the idea of this, you know, how we've turned it into this mythical figure. And it's, it's something, you know, in that vaulting, that moment when we leap with our imagination towards something bigger, there's something, we're trying to go some, beyond a little bit what we know, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe even a little bit beyond what we presently believe. We're trying to see past it. And all of that was sort of compacted into that line for me when I, when I wrote it. Um, and a lot of it was just a reaching mm-hmm. for that in a way. If that makes sense. No, no, that that really does. Yeah. I think you know, that's what we talk about on this podcast all the time. But that's what poetry is really trying to do is to to articulate the things that you know, but don't know, you know, and, and know somehow in your heart, but don't understand. And um, and I think mm-hmm. I really feel like when it works, what's happening is that the poet sort of reaches to some kind of um, collective subconscious thing that exists in the universe, some kind of connection and it ends up being mm-hmm. like your subconscious talking directly for a moment to my subconscious. It doesn't usually have, um, you know, doesn't have access to the linguistic systems of our brain, right? So, so, right. so it's cool when a line jumps out like that, and that's the line for you that really spoke in the poem too. And um, I don't know, there's something about that line that I just loved, and I, I kept sort of pondering that as I was reading the rest of the poems in the book. So it's a good, good first poem to um, start with. What's What's also interesting about that is one of the reviews that was written for it um, read that poem as a kind of Ars Poetica. Hmm. Yeah. And looked at the rest of the collection in light of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I don't know if maybe I got that from reading one of the reviews. I don't know if it was on the back. But um, but I was wondering if you meant, and I was kind of hoping that it meant more than that to you, because it, it means more than that to me. Like, there's a lot more to the, the cave that no one believes in than just, like, the cave of poetry, you know? I mean... Um, you know, but you could really easily read it as a statement about how, um, you know, poetry is marginalized or whatever within our culture. Um, but I think there's a lot more to it than that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's the thing. I, and that's a part of that, that leap out towards something a little bit more than we presently know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really, I mean, you can't articulate that except in... That's really what art is about in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I think stumps, at least for me, the question of, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it means exactly what it says. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a wonderful anecdote about Sibelius uh, having a, he was, he, 
had a symphony on album and he played it for a friend of his and his friend after it was over said well what does that mean and Sibelius's response was to get up and put it back on <laughs> yeah um, that's what it means mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean if we could articulate it we wouldn't need the poem you know that's just why exactly. that's what real art does whether it's a painting that speaks to something in a certain way or a poem or, or any kind of art you know, if it's art it speaks to something that you can't can't articulate um, which is why I think that, that most people aren't speaking of the cave, though. I mean, if you did use that as a metaphor for poets in their cave, you know, it's the reason why more people aren't in the cave is because, um, you know, you know, confronting things that you don't quite know and understand is a little frightening for, for people a lot of the time. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it's not a pleasure, you know, it's uh, it's right. something different. It's an it's an exci- it's a I don't know. It's, it's like a extreme sport of the mind or something. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And the talk of taking of taking risk in art mm-hmm. or being courageous in art. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It really matters. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are those poems you wind up writing and you're almost afraid to recite them in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any of those in the book? Uh, not in this book. I'm happy I can recite all of these without <laughs> hesitation. <laughs> but I've been writing some of those poems lately. Uh-huh. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay, well, uh, do you want to read maybe like two more from the book, and then we'll, we'll talk a little more? Sure, sure. Uh, the next one I'm going to do is Bioluminescence, which is on page 15. Um, this poem was actually inspired by uh, a photo of my wife and um, taken by a friend out in Colorado when we were visiting and uh, it led into this poem, Bioluminescence. Old philosophers would call this look melancholia. But I see in this photo of my wife thinking, weathers of competing beauty. Someone who can be in two places at once, there on the couch, leaning into the cushion folds, and somewhere else, focused on the unseen, beyond the clock's exhausting wrap, working an idea like dough into the necessary bread. All moments of clarity narrow like this, the periphery dimmed as in a Rembrandt, his philosopher in meditation sitting in a shaft of light as if at the bottom of a well, because the profound leads into dark places, like the ocean floor where the only illumination comes from the bodies of fish swimming through its miles of perpetual night. Yeah, we'll do another poem really quick, but just to jump in and say, it was such, it's so strange to see this poem, because uh, our, uh, our um, prompt poem this week is about the, the fang tooth from one of the deep sea fish. So we have, uh, at the open mic at the end, we have a whole bunch of poems that this would fit pretty well with. So uh, it's a good, and, and really the infinite doctrine of water is such a strange coincidence that we did this book, because there are a whole bunch of sea, you know, deep sea imagery throughout the book, and, and water you know, is, is central to, to everything. Um, so there's a cool yep. coincidence that, that that happened today. So so stu- tune in for the uh, open mic later. But uh, anyway, keep going. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's okay. Um, the next one is is called uh, Study for Infatuation, which is on page 21. Um, Study for Infatuation. Sometimes the blue sky threatens. The lilac conceals some danger but it passes like a cougar stalking among the boulders 
and deciding mysteriously to move on. You don't know, but something you did or didn't do saved your life. And what might have happened had you turned your back on this sunset, this rotting fence post, this dandelion dripping its yellow into the cracks along the gutter? Something seamlessly escapes, and you can't follow. In the loam and marrow, its tracks evaporate like water, and like water, when again it dashes a flirtatious spindrift before you, it will mass a cloud over trees, seeming fresh with such an allure, shading the street, an enticement of flight and melody. It will play in the mind like an etude, strength to endure the long, beautiful devouring. That was Study for Infatuation from The Infinite Doctrine of Water, Michael T. Young's newest book. Um, so, Michael, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your, um, your journey into poetry. Because, you know, you work, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but it's one of the big four um, accounting business firms. Um, yeah, and uh, did in, so it's an interesting, you know, like um, Wallace Stevens and, and many others who um, had jobs, <laughs> you know, in the business sector. Um, how did you end up being a poet too? Or were you a poet first and then left? Or did you, um, how'd that work? Yeah, I've, I've been writing poetry since I'm about, seriously, mm-hmm. since I'm 15. I was 15. Um, I, I got into poetry actually through, oddly, through martial arts. And um, because I started, I started studying martial arts when I was around 11, but I also started reading philosophy about that time. Um, and mostly reading things like the Tao Te Ching, Alan Watts, Krishnamurti, and mm-hmm. people like that. And there's a lot of poetry in there. And um, around the age of 15, I injured my back. And my high school library teacher had uh, given us a, a an assignment to write a poem. And she just, uh, after read, she read my poem, suggested, you know, she said, did you ever think of being a writer? And... Um, while my back was healing, I started writing, and uh, then I, I never stopped. I didn't go back to martial arts. I decided to write instead. And uh, so that is what I've been doing since then. And uh, winding up at Deloitte was, you know, I've been just mm-hmm. doing administrative work since uh, I left high school. So I started out at the public library. Then when I moved to New York, I worked at various places like uh, the American Bible Society, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, places like that. But always doing stuff that's mm-hmm. similar to administrative work. And now I'm at, at Deloitte. So, Do you think that yeah. frees you up, you know, since you don't, during your day job, since you don't spend time focusing on poetry? We were talking last week with um, um, Kathleen Balma, who is a librarian. And um, she right. talked about how her other jobs, you know, that didn't involve poetry were sort of like a blessing because she felt like poetry could be her sanctuary from the rest of her life rather than like the center. So she stayed in a place where it was like joyful and never felt like work. I, I'm, I'm putting her words in her mouth, maybe, but she said something like that. Do you feel that way? Do you, do you think it's a um, do you think it's sort of a, a better way to, to be a poet, to have a, a job that's not in poetry? I, I think it is better. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that fantasizes about being in academia 
but I think that's probably because I've never been in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and because um, I have friends who are in it, and I know it's very difficult for them. I know how hard it is to, you know, get jobs and keep jobs and, you know, make enough money mm-hmm. and things like that. And the competition is awfully hard. I mean, there's, you know, a minuscule number of jobs for a huge field of very talented people. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really have to, I don't really think about that. And that I think mm-hmm. is helpful. I don't have to worry about that or be concerned about it. I can just write about what I want. I don't have to publish in order to keep my job. I can publish when I want to hold off when I want to. Cause a lot of times, I mean, even, you know, like after putting a book out, a lot of times I like to just pull back and not think about another book. I like to just write a poem, poem after poem because mm-hmm. something strikes me. And I, I think I have more freedom to do that. And I don't have to worry about grading papers or what the next term is going to be. And what we're going to be studying, I can study whatever I want uh-huh. at the time, <laughs> you know, and I, and I enjoy doing that too. Just sort of, uh, thinking I, I get on binges and I want to read certain types of writing or certain people or do certain things. I don't have to worry about being pulled away from that because mm-hmm. of other obligations where I have to do a syllabus and now we have to, I have to reread this stuff for the class so that I'm ready, prepared for teaching. You know, I can read whatever I want. And I, and that, yeah, I like yeah. that. Do, do you think about your poetry during the day, during the workday? Or is it sort of firewalled off where you, you know, when you get home and on the, on the commute, that, that's when you turn your attention? <laughs> a lot of times it's on my way home. Um, that's usually when I'm thinking about, I usually read on my way home. I'll start contemplating maybe an image or something like that. I do have time during my day because because of my lunch breaks, I get an hour. So a lot of times I use that time to either work on poems, work on essays or reviews, send things out. Um, so my, my hour lunches are, you know, I guard them very Mm -hmm. closely. Um, but that's when I get a lot of that done. And, uh, every once in a while there might be a slow time at work that maybe I'll jot something down Mm -hmm. here or there. You know, I, write a note down for what has to be done and then I write a line and then I write another yeah. note what has to be done. Um, but most of it's my lunch, t- mm-hmm. my lunch time and my time home or maybe a few minutes before I fall asleep. I've had that happen where I'll, I'll get something right before I'm about to fall asleep and I boot my computer up and dash something off um, and then get to revise it mm-hmm. through the week. Um, so those are the primary ways yeah, that I get yeah. things Yeah, it's one done. of those things where I sort of glamorize it in my head. Like, it feels like the perfect way to engage with poetry. But I think, I know I'm sort of over, over glamorizing it. Um, but you mentioned, you know, not having to worry about what you write. But, but having a job in the corporate world, do you worry about writing something that messes with your, your day job? You know, I mean, like, um, you, know, you know, poets have a public platform for their opinions and, and Googleable all the time mm-hmm. for things and things can be misunderstood. Mm-hmm, and right. um, do you worry about, you know, your, your supervisors reading a poem that you wrote and, and not agreeing with it somehow or anything like that? Or is that not something that comes into play? In the... uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't think any supervisors mm-hmm. read poetry for most people <laughs> to read poetry. <laughs> That's true. Well, <laughs> if one of my supervisors said, hey, I read your poem yesterday, uh-huh. I'd be like, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you're thinking back, the, um, 
we've had a few people who asked us to delete poems because they were worried about their employment you know situations they were all teachers there's not a single you know it's like four or five maybe four people who have done that over the years right. and it's stuff that like their students found it and then told their parents and then it was something that they didn't want their you know right. principal at the school to to know about or something so they asked if i could delete a poem from the website which only happens with teachers i think so um no one from I see that being yeah like, yeah like a lot of times we don't think about what we're writing, you know, and you write about like, especially if you're a teacher, you know, for kids, you know, if you're writing about like sex, then, um, you know, parents get upset about that if they find Miss, you know, Mrs. Hannigan or whatever is writing about her, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so it is something that you kind of have to think about in certain, certain positions, but, but luckily not yours, I guess. No. And I know high school teachers who are poets that publish and i imagine they might have to yeah, think about it yeah. every once in a while but i i feel no concern <laughs> about that because i don't think anybody's looking yeah why, why do you why do you think that is i mean let's yeah. just touch on that topic a little bit but why don't more people read poetry <laughs> yeah yeah in general and i might just come down to why many mm-hmm. people um really I, I don't think we have a culture that reads uh, or is encouraged to read um sadly uh i think we just don't i don't think we teach people to see it mm-hmm. as a pleasure as something enjoyable where we we see learning and reading as something we have to do to maybe get a job learn this and get a job you know read a manual mm-hmm. or whatever have you rather than engaging the imagination as being this thing that's we do for fun um and maybe we, if we could get people to see that engaging their imagination is fun, people might read mm-hmm. more. Um, or they might want to uh, engage yeah, yeah. those things. If it was you know, seen as an adventure, I think, you know, which is what it is. It's a mental adventure. Um, well, we had a great Absolutely. question from Mickey Blankish, which I'm going to get to. But I want you to read two poems first uh, to sort of shift back to poetry. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. What's the next one? Do? Um, uh, the next one, is, this is on page 25, and it's called Sage. None of my dictionaries define it as a color, and yet my wife tells me it's the color of our wedding, her dress, my tie. I take her word for it, but feel no wiser. I sometimes find it in the tiles of some mosaic or fired into a mug now on clearance at the store, and I'm suddenly connected, rooted, though it depends on the light, as color always does, changing with air densities and angles, shifting with the hours, aging, like the plant that is this color's namesake, its leaves like fingers pointing in every direction, as if it knew something. And I guess the next one. Uh, the next one uh, I'm going to read is uh, The Generosity of the Past. And this starts on page 28. The Generosity of the Past. 
In our apartment, there was always light, splitting through the windows like mercy, illuminating bookshelves and what we thought. Our conversations or our glasses of wine lifted to toast each day of generosity, the quantity surpassing what we knew. We read our books, discussed the world we knew, interpretations shifting with the light. We lived by an aesthetic of generosity, art and music painting our world with mercy, although diluted by several bottles of wine, and so reduced to memory and thought. Sediment in the bottles was like a thought, a remnant of the past and all we knew, nights listening to Liszt or tasting wine, arguing over how things changed with light, how sometimes saying nothing is like mercy, was a generosity. The simplest things are forms of generosity, like paying bills, or making tea with thought for how you like it, sugar, a little mercy. We knew that once, but then forgot we knew. So when we changed, we blamed the changing light and turned to vinegar like aging wine. But then we'd drink just anything, old wine, bad scotch, tequila, those generosity, a generosity that took no delight, not in our books, not in a word or thought. We toasted to the past and what we knew, began the long goodbyes with little mercy. If time allowed us to forgive, that's mercy. And I recall with every glass of wine, because it's who I am and what I knew, and I am thankful for the generosity of that time, for its store of meaning and thought, which are to me here now a kind of light, for it's a light that makes a spectrum of mercy, colorful thoughts as deep and rich as wine, a generosity that's always new. That was The Generosity of the Past by Michael T. Young, uh, a sestina, if you're wondering at home, Correct. Uh, from uh, The Infinite Doctrine of Water. Um, so... Let's see. So I had a question. I wanted to read your note from the poem that we published today. Um, uh, We just shared it as as a back issue Tuesday feature. But you said writing poetry is the slow process of thinking clearly, of connecting seemingly disparate elements in the progress toward meaning. Every day is filled with vertiginous moments about to break into such odd but true realizations, taking time to realize those insights and articulate them. In a poem is not only a pleasure, but a necessity. And, and I want to talk about that vertiginous moments a little bit. Um, you know, the poems sort of feel very, I don't know, I don't want to say like Whitman-esque, but there's sort of a, a nature poetry vibe where you're noticing hmm. things as you pass through the sort of landscape of your life, um, even though mm-hmm. it's New York City. So it's not like a nature, nature, but it's, it's <laughs> human nature, you know? I mean, it's scenes and, you know, bridges and the Hudson River, um, right. um, do you find that, that you get inspired that way as you pass through New York city? Is that, is that a central theme for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, as I said, I was, there are a lot of times when I'm coming home from work and that's when I'll start getting images or thoughts about things and I'll jot them in the book I'm reading or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, get them onto the computer when I get home. So there are times when um, just various moments when I'm walking through the city 
or I'm just walking around my neighborhood. I mean, one of the poems in the collection is The Reservoir. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reservoir that inspired that is just down the block. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, that particular one, I one of my favorite collections is uh, Rilke's New Poems. And Rilke got his ideas for the new poems walking around Paris, just jotting down ideas and subjects. And um, a lot of times I, I, I'll think about that and I'll just start looking around me and looking for subjects mm -hmm. and what I'm noticing. And that's how I start jotting notes down toward things. So, yeah, that does happen a lot for me. Do, do you ever just say, I want to write a poem today and you sit down in front of a blank page with no image to to start with it? Does that happen too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think poets should be able to sit down and work at it. I don't I, I, I forget what it was, but I uh, oh, it was actually on a, a Facebook conversation uh, with a, a wonderful poet. And uh, he, he Alfred Korn, he posts some questions sometimes. And he said, you know, well, how did that go? When I when I was a young poet, when I was a young writer or a young poet, I thought that now that I'm older, I. I know this. And, and my thought was that, you know, when I was younger, I thought inspiration led to work. And I said, now that I'm older, I know that work leads to inspiration. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good um, point. And, and I think that's what we need to do. I mean, I, every, if you ever look at the, the writing habits of a lot of the poets we really admire, uh, you know, like W.H. Auden or Joseph Brodsky or James Merrill, you know, these guys had hours that they got up in the morning and they wrote for a certain number of hours and then they went out and did other things for the day. Mm -hmm. So they treated it like a job. And, and, I, and I, I think that's a very important lesson. You know, they're not sitting around waiting to be struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they're going out looking for it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, they, yeah. They, get, they, they go out and they get a lightning rod and they go out in the storm and they stand there like this mm -hmm. and they get it to work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah that, that's a quote by, who's, who's that by? It says like a poet... Is somebody who goes yep. out in the rain and gets struck by lightning, and a great poet is somebody who gets struck three. Yeah, Randall Jarrell. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was Randall Jarrell, and a poet named Charles Martin actually made a wonderful poem about it. Mm, um, yeah, I forget which collection it's in. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, so, so this sort of ties in to what Mickey uh, Mickey Blankishash. She says, "I'm curious about your process. You have many excellent lines. Do they tend to build in in order of the poem, or do you assemble them more in a collage fashion?" or some approach like do you sort of scatter your your thoughts around and then put construct them or do they come out linearly i guess is the another way to put that question i think it's different every time it's different every time sometimes there is a collage effect um like that poem that opens the collection mm -hmm. uh the the risk of listening to brahms um to me it felt and that's what led to me writing the quote that you you have on the the website and about those disparate pieces coming together um that that to me felt like this collage effect there were these very different thoughts that i had but they somehow connected and i knew they connected and so then i put them together and then there are other times when it seems like something is a progression you know one thing leads to the next mm -hmm. um but I, I do find it different all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's a, a process of working at it. Each one to me is very different than the last one. And it's a process of finding out how this is going to work this time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, where, where are these pieces going and how do they, they come together? Um, so I, I think, and I think that's the process of learning to improve one's writing, to see what's working this time with these pieces and how they fit <coughs> and how they progress. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Good answer. Um, why don't we read, read a few more poems? Okay. Uh, the next one is the close reading. This is on page 37. This is, a, this is one of my personal favorites in the collection. I used to read while nestled in a crook of maple branches or seated on a slab of concrete that jutted into lake water. Striders coasting the rumpled sheets. Reeds on the far shore needled the shallows, writing subtext into palms of sunlight, alluding to trout and bass tunneling the deep, to the early alphabets of mud and rock. Mallards skirted the surface by day, by night, their wings scratching brief calligraphies into the water. There was always something to read, a word or glyph to decipher, Canada geese pausing in their long migrations, or a dead fish with pierced armor leaking his guts to the summer sun, to flies unzipping the air in busy gratitude, to those days when my idea of heaven was so big it contained even this. Apologize for the No, it's cool. We have no, you know, when <laughs> where I am, we're in a town of like maybe 3,000 actual people. And if there's a siren, it's like a, a, you know, headline news for the local Facebook page. Like, what was that siren? <laughs> What's going on? So um, it, it's kind of fun to remember what it's yeah. like to live in an actual city. Do I see lights like right there? Is that <laughs> right outside your window? Oh, yeah. They're going right by because the street that they're going uh -huh. by is right next to me. It's... And so the as the sirens go, as the mm. lights go by, that's, that's dramatic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as there isn't a crash outside, which we have an intersection nearby, and unfortunately, oh really, it happens every once in a while. People mm -hmm. don't pay attention to the lights enough. Um, yeah, yeah. Why don't you do two one? more? Let's try to get. Yeah, I mean, you got a bunch two of good more? poems here. Let's let's try to get through them all. Okay. Uh, this one is called The Longest Hibernation. I once collected notebooks of runes and hieroglyphs, traced the evolving stages of Chinese from pictograms to ideograms, felt their swoops and curls under my hand, as if the pen were a key about to unlock a cage, releasing some mythical bird, a kindled emissary, beating about the room, striking some fire, Nesting habitably as the barns nested in the hills and farms of Olu. Their spotted hex signs, their haylofts thick with fodder and secrets molting in the rafters. All of it forked down the feeding holes to the cattle with the necessity of full disclosure and endurance. Where that's how it would turn out in our favorite stories. Those that fed the slow progress to the better life, even then, in the 70s, when my Uncle Woody worked in a glass factory, could only say he had made domes for missile silos, but nothing more. 
all the details vitreous, greased, and in our best interest. Like the Cold War, like the triple triangle on the school across the street, a sign, a symbol so blunt, it was the opposite of shelter, a place to burrow down like an animal curling into a long hibernation, trying to sleep through the end of everything. And this next one is called Seed. I prefer reading history in a flowering of dirt and cooked mud. The glittering text of macadam after rain, the squirrel's risky acrobatics in the mulberry, leaps from limb to limb to telephone cables, the occasional fall and hard thud. The beauty of this daring makes a stage of my backyard, makes the page of a story printed in the very enactment, an image I carry with me like a book of hours, or the stained glass panels of Saint-Chapelle, telling the whole story from creation to the end of the world in images and colors radiant with struggle. And that was Seed from... Uh the infinite doctrine of water. Um, let me ask sort of two questions sort of simultaneously. So, so Brian, <laughs> Brian Guidi asks, is there a favorite poem that you have written or are they all special in your own way? Why don't you just do that one first? Is there, is there, is there a special poem for you or um, are they all sort of special? And if so, what, what makes that special poem special? Um, well, I have a few that, that mean a lot to me for different reasons um and like like biolemon the bioluminescence poem that i read earlier um you know that one means a lot to me because it's connected to a trip that my wife and i took out to colorado to visit friends and i have this image you know in my head of my wife in that picture and the time we were out there so sometimes you know, those kinds of associations become important. Um, and, and that means a lot, you know, the generosity of the past, that, uh, the, one of the other poems I read, you know, that's another one that connects to uh, another time in my life that was very meaningful and hence what the poem talks about. Um, so I find a lot of the, a lot of different poems, you know, have associations that are, that are meaningful for different mm -hmm. things. Um, you know, some of the poems I'm writing now, like those poems that I, I was saying how I'm writing some that I'm almost afraid to recite in public. Um, but some of those are, are, you know, connecting to things, you know, from far back in my past, from when I was a child and things that, you know, I tried to articulate about various social issues, but in my own, my own context, in my history. And so they they're very meaningful in that respect, you know, trying to look closer at what I understand about the nature of our culture mm -hmm. and things like that. So a number of them, and, but all for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, the close reading poem is one of my favorites in this collection, but I like that because of the, the music mm -hmm. in it. I'm very pleased with the, the sonic effects and the phonetics and the, the way the poems, the, the words relate to each other. I think it's one of the more successful poems in the mm -hmm. collection myself. 
yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, so who, um, what I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask uh, who, <clears throat> who some of your favorite poet, poets are. And uh, on a side note, <laughs> um, are there any poems you mentioned um, being in martial arts before? Are there any poets who write about martial arts? Because my uh, jujitsu, uh, my son's jujitsu teacher asked me just like last week if I had any books that I could suggest for him. The only one I could think of is Don Baird. I don't know if you know him. He's a haiku poet and he owns a dojo in los angeles um but other than that um we had one poem um um about how a drunk at the bar it's by um oh what's his name i'm drawing a blank on his name but there's a poem in like um, a couple issues ago about somebody who who is a black belt poet uh, but he doesn't write about it that much are there any books of poetry about martial arts that you're aware of i'm not aware of any that are just about martial Mm -hmm. arts um i know there is um a villanelle um uh, it makes me want to run to my my bookshelf uh-huh. because i can't remember the the writer's last name J- his first name is jason um <laughs> and it's in a collection that won a, an award um maybe like the walt whitman award or something mm-hmm. like that uh but he wrote a villanelle and it's about bruce lee and wanting to be like bruce lee but it plays mm-hmm. off of oh, one okay. art um, in a brilliant way, and uh, I'm, I'll, I'll send that to you after the reading because it, it's a really okay, yeah, fun yeah. poem. Uh, it's one of my yeah. favorite martial arts. I'm, I'm curious to see that. Um, so, so who are who are poets you read though? Like, um, like who do you like to read? Oh boy. Uh, lately, uh, I spent a lot of time with Adrian Rich um, last year, and uh, I also reread. Dickinson last year um I sort of go through uh various phases and things like that uh Rich became very (coughs) excuse me became very important to me um especially because of her ability to deal with political issues and social issues um both in her prose and in her poetry and uh, I, I sort of just dove very deeply into her poetry and her prose and uh, spent a few months with it probably well I was maybe 2017 but then it spilled over into 2018 a little and then I went back into it again last year um, so I spent a lot of time with Rich uh, but some of my, my favorite poets really uh, I mean there's so many uh, I loved for years I loved Richard Wilbur is one of my favorites. Uh, W.S. Merwin, uh, James Merrill, Elizabeth Bishop. Coming to more uh, recent people, I really like Natasha Trethway, Terrence Hayes. Um, I spent a lot of time with, you know, Stephen Dunn a while ago, Gerald Stern. For me, those a lot of those poets, and I mean. Seamus Haney. I love the tactile quality of his poetry. There's so many wonderful poets. It's really hard mm-hmm. to just identify a handful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I obsessed a lot about Milton when I was younger. Uh, when I was a teenager, I, I sort of spent about a year just preparing to read Paradise Lost and then read Paradise Lost and then reread it about seven times and then took a class in college on it. So that was like a big, big one for me. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with Milton. Uh, 
early on. And then there's Frost and Poe and, you know. Yeah, there's, there's yeah, there really so are. <laughs> Um, now, uh, CB99 videos asked a question, and, and that's I've tried to remember her name, but um, it's the it's the person who lives on a houseboat. I remember that, but um, she asked a, it's sort of very specific technical question. But uh, she asked why mm-hmm. um, in your poems, um, why, why do the titles have a sans serif font while the rest of the fonts are serif fonts, <laughs> which um, just brings up an interesting, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I have experienced publishing one book. I've published other people's books uh, with our chapbook series. With our chapbook series, there's the, the format set, and nobody can really change the inner um, layout. With um, Red Hand Press, that published my book, uh, American Fractal, like 10 years ago, um, they they just sure showed me a layout. I asked them they could make an adjustment, and they did, and that's kind of all it was to it. How much say do you have in the design as a poet? You've been author of three books and two champ books, if I remember right, or just one champ? Oh yeah, okay, correct. So so and it's all with different presses too, I think. Um, yeah, so how how has are. your experience been different with each press, or is it sort of a standardized thing? And do you get to make choices like that about the serif and, and sans serif fonts? Um. All the presses I've worked with, I've had a lot of interaction and a lot of say in how mm-hmm. things finally turn out, which I've always been happy about. I mean, like the like the cover, when you mentioned the cover, uh, I mean, I got to pick that. I tracked it down and found it, and I was mm-hmm. the one that put it in. Um, but with, with that, it was just sort of a, a, a back and forth with uh, Diane Lockwood, ah, the, okay. the mm-hmm. one who runs... She's a wonderful poet, and uh, she has a newsletter and puts out craft books, and she runs Terrapin Press as well. And, you know, there was a lot of back and forth on everything from, you know, revisions to the poems to uh, how the cover looked to the, the fonts being used and having a different font. I know we went through a process of specifically deciding there would mm-hmm. be a different font for the the titles. I can't remember the reasoning behind it, but it all made sense as we <laughs> yeah, went along. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was always mutually agreed upon. We never, it was never, this is how it has to be in mm-hmm. any particular direction. We all worked through making the decision together. Yeah. And I've had that experience with mm-hmm. almost every press. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I imagine it, and that's my sense of it. Is that it's very interactive because these are small presses, and um, you know it, the yeah. marketing is going to be all you, and the you know a lot of the just a lot of the choices are you. It's not like you're working with um, FSG and you have a team of people, you know, imposing their what's going to sell because what sells is just it really right, really probably the most important factor for how well a poetry book sells is how happy you are as a poet with it because you're the main marketer. And if you're excited to be selling it and um, getting people to buy it, that's the thing that's going to get people to buy it. So I think um, it probably just falls naturally in that direction through economic uh, ecosystems. Um, but what's your experience yeah. been like um, in the publishing process in general? Because you're you've got you know those three books and two chat books. You've been published all over. Can you talk a little bit about the the climb up the ladder to where you you know could publish three books of poetry? Um, was it, were you struggling for a time? Were you like submitting things and getting them rejected? And, and what was, um, was there a time where you, (laughs) (laughs) was was there a time where you like sort of, 
you know, realize like I, you know, I, I landed something that's successful and I can take this seriously. Was there a moment for you that was like a big moment? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think to me, it, it's just the commitment to, well, one, to the art itself. Um, I, I really, there are very few things I enjoy more than the struggle of getting a poem right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, feeling you know there's you have that like frost called the homesickness mm-hmm. that beginning of a poem and getting to the point where you work at it whether it's a week or two years or 13 years and you get this poem right that moment of knowing you got it and there's a point when it seems like you know you got it even if you can't articulate it you're like that's it and i love that moment of realizing I got this thing that I was working toward right. Um, when it comes to the movement of getting things published, to getting books published and put out there, um, I think if you're interested in putting together the work and putting the work into it, putting the, the work, putting the poems and everything out into the world, in different forms, first in journals, then in books or chapbooks, um, you know, I think, or going, or even in readings. I think that's all a part of the process. Mm-hmm. It's not you write a poem and then you publish a poem. It all becomes a part of a single process, which includes getting them rejected and getting them accepted and eventually having enough to put together a book and figure out how it coheres um, and finding a publisher for that, and then, you know, promoting it. It all seems to be, to me, a whole part of just doing, you know, putting it out into the world mm-hmm. and saying, Here's, here are these poems. This is something that, you know, has a particular vision, uh, a way of articulating certain feelings and certain perceptions that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think there's a moment where suddenly you make it and don't get rejected anymore. Or, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. I think that's... Well, I, say, I, think it, I, think it, I think it does. But, <laughs> but maybe... Carl Bennett said it didn't. Really? Even after... He, uh-huh. Yeah, I remember him making the statement even after mm-hmm. winning the Pulitzer that he still hmm. gets rejections. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> just the, the, the sense of indignation that some people have when I reject them, I kind of get the sense that they're not used to it. But, uh, but that's a side, side topic. That, and that, well, yeah, and that's why I'd say, hey, wallpaper and rejection. And I used mm-hmm. to literally do that uh, when I when I lived in the village with all my artist friends, and we and that's when we didn't have computers where we just submitted everything su- mm-hmm. through submittable. I would get letters, and I'd have a rejection slip, and it would go on the wall. And my room was wallpapered in rejection slips, and my friends thought it was morbid, and I was like, no, I find it helpful. You know, it sort of turned it into. It turned mm-hmm. it into its own project, um, you know, trying to finish yeah. the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that I miss from I haven't submitted poems in like over ten years, but one of the things I miss is just that sense of possibility when stuff is out there. Uh, you know, like Absolutely. just having poems yeah. out that could you know you could at the time you know what I was submitting it was more over the mail still. Uh, but you could go to the post office and maybe there would be something cool there. And that's one of the things I really miss about submitting, submitting poems. Um, um, earlier, you mentioned um, 
frost and homesickness, which is something I'm not familiar with. Can you explain what that means? Like how, he said something about homesickness. I'm not familiar with that. Oh yeah. It's, it's, he talked about how a poem begins and he said it begins as a homesickness. Um, there are a few uh, metaphors he uses and maybe somebody will type it into the uh, thread on the side. But one of them is he says it, it begins as a homesickness, you know, this, this sense of longing to, you know, maybe go somewhere, but you don't know where it is. You know, mm-hmm. I'm elaborating. That's not all. He just called it a homesickness and it's just the germ the beginning of what the mm-hmm. poem is going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's something very <laughs> to Google. <laughs> That's true. Um, Type loss and homesickness. I'm well, sure um, Let's see. Jack Green asks if you could uh, read The Risk of Listening to Brahms. But if you go to Rattle's website, you can listen to him read it there. So we're not going to do that tonight. But just go there. It's right on the homepage today. Um, but you had three poems you wanted to close out with. So let's, uh, let's close out with those. I think we have time to just do all three. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Jack. <laughs> no, Jack will enjoy it. Uh, just, just, you know. He's an old. <laughs> uh, the next poem I'm going to read is on page 66. And this is called Paperclip. And uh, I will interject that the thing I say about Oxford here is true. It's something I found out and led to this poem. I learned that in an interview to enter Oxford, they might ask how you would describe infinity. And I thought about once being asked how I would describe a paperclip to an alien, that is, to someone who's never seen one. It was a writing exercise that made me think of how I would describe the autumn mountains where I grew up. And I decided that they are the color of whiskey and intoxication and exuberance which might be a way of describing a paperclip. That it is a wire that's intoxicated, wandering in circles, swiveling on its heels as it makes its way out to meet friends that it embraces, holds together in a maudlin circle of endearment, all of which is also how I think of the infinite. And I'll read the last poem in the collection, which is called The Voice of Water. It sounds like grape leaves shaking. It cushions like thick grass underfoot. Its currents spread beyond the range of mountains, which is why sometimes people mistake it for the distant trickle of the sun setting. The error depends on which way they're walking, and if the wind is blowing from the north or south. It licks your fingers when you wave, and only by its tongue can you tell if the person you're greeting is a stranger or some distant uncle. Comforted by one of its many dialects, your neighbor grins from his porch, cigarette in hand. When it whispers, it whispers with the same heaping hush of salt pouring from an uncapped shaker. Because of its excesses, it remembers. Even after you've closed the book, it keeps reciting the lines. Um, and yes, I was going to close with um, a poem that's not in the collection, one of my newer ones, which uh, appears in um, the Valparaiso Poetry Review last year. 
around this time, I think, or maybe May. This poem is called Ways to Open. The door to my house is so blue, I think of it as an entrance to the sea. In its beveled window, reflected clouds swell white like an organ forming, a lung, alluvial, and spilling its breath of salt gems and spindrift. Waters splash off the frame, depositing on the door sill memories in the shape of shells, a sprinkling of sea glass. The blue sky beyond looms and reminds me there is a lock and somewhere a key. On clear days, I can remember that what I'm attempting is to find new ways to open. Michael T. Young, thanks so much for sharing those poems with us. I, I remember um, back when I was in college, when I fell in love with poetry for the first time, I'd love to go to poetry reading because it made me feel like I want to read poems. And, or I mean, write poems, I should say. And like words that fly around right. in your brain, you know? And that's how I feel after reading or listening to your poems. So thanks so much. Uh, hopefully everybody who's watching this now will go write a poem tonight. Um, but yeah. That was wonderful. <laughs> so Michael T. Young, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, Thank you. Have a great night. So that was, uh, that was Michael T. Young. Um, his book, once again, uh, his most recent, is um, his most recent is the Infinite Doctrine of Water, and as you uh, heard before, it's from Terrapin Books. Um, and you can find more about Michael T. Young at his website michaeltyoung.com. You can find links to all of his books, um, including this this latest. He's also got two uh, a poem in, in uh, the winter issue of Rattle. So um, check that out if you're a subscriber and enjoy another Michael T. Young poem. As always, it's been a lot of fun for me. This is one of the my favorite things of the week. I just, it makes me fall in love with poetry all over again. Every time you do this, if you feel the same way and you enjoy these shows, uh, please do click the like button and share, tell your friends to watch because the more people who watch, the more people who get it thrust in front of them with the way that, uh, algorithms and things work, no matter what platform you're on YouTube or uh, iTunes or, you know, give it four stars or five stars, whatever the best is over there. Um, share it on Facebook, all that stuff, because interacting tells the computer that, uh, that you care about it and other people might too. And that's the way to get uh, poetry spread around the world rather than, um, you know, complaining about politics. So I uh, hope you have a great week uh, next week. Let's see. Next week we have, ah, Christina Olson. This is going to be a good one. Uh, well, it's always going to be a good one, but uh, Christina Olson is the author of the last Mastodon. And uh, that's our last year's one of our three Chapek prize winners last year. The Last Macedon's a book uh, about um, the Western, Humani or Western Science Center, uh, which is in Hemet, California, not too far down the road from me. And um, it's a poem about, well, I don't know, slavery and human ownership and uh, fossils and science. And I love it because those are um, things that I find very fascinating. It's a really moving and uh, interesting book. So, um, and Christina is a really interesting person, too. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know her. That is next week, Tuesday, February 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you then. In the meantime, have a great rest of your week. Good night. <laughs>